welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. It's great to be back. Uh, we, have, we were back uh, last uh, Sunday uh, and I've been away before that and I, I made a dry Australian joke by saying, well, I've been away nine weeks, so I'm here Sunday, but I'll be gone for the next nine weeks because I'm just popping in. But I was only joking. I am back. I'm not going away again for a little while. Um, and yes, the run and yes, the limp. The, uh, I blame the tankard jeans for my incredibly sore hamstring uh, because I went for a run with Caleb's brother um, a few weeks ago in New Zealand and he's just chatting away and I look across and he looks like he's not going very fast at all and I'm, you know, pumping and going up and down hills trying to keep up with him and he's asking questions. Like he said, so what's with the voice? Oh man, I had to explain the whole voice thing, you know. <laughs> you know, so so much for the talk test. I, I'm, I'm just, I, and I'm trying to. Well, no, you tell me about your whole life, you know. And, and you throw over, you know, chatting away, super friendly, just like Caleb. Oh, so my, I so I pulled my hamstring that day, and I've been suffering ever since. And then um, I, uh, I probably wasn't in prime condition to do this run this morning. Let's just say so. After a kilometre. My hammy blew up, but just finish anyway, so got over the line. And so here I am in a world of blessing. <laughs> um, praise the Lord. So, uh, oh, and of course, Caleb doesn't train at all, rocks up. Luke's been training and, uh, and they take off and, uh, and Luke's like struggling to keep up with Caleb. And Luke's been working hard, but then little Brownie just pushed it with 500 to go and overtook his brother-in-law and Caleb couldn't care less. Oh, yeah, good on you, Luke. Yeah, well done. You know, you know. So, um, praise the Lord. Uh, so we've been talking about the names of Jesus. Well, you've been talking about the names of Jesus, but uh, and I hope you've got one of these uh, laminated sheets. Uh, if you want anything laminated, you know it's one of Linda's great loves in life. She loves, she hovers around the office. Anyone, anyone laminate? She loves laminating. So uh, this is a Countdown to Christmas, a different biblical title or name that's used for Jesus each day leading up to Christmas. And uh, this week, if you'd been looking over the last few days, and it's either today or in the recent days, um, uh, that we're going to zoom in on one of them. Uh, you know, we've been travelling, we went to New Zealand, and um, anywhere you go, you see all the time people looking for community, people looking for a place to belong. Of course, we have natural families, but beyond that, you've got all kinds of different groups, people gathering around a common interest, um, you know, an art and craft group, uh, you know, you've got passionate Gardening people and the local pub, of course. Uh, people love to gather at the local, the watering hole. You've got sports groups. You've got all these crazy runners. Why you'd be 
part of that group, I don't know. Uh, and, and then others get real serious about a particular cause, you know. So these days we're seeing a lot of political activists all protesting about things that they don't understand. Uh, and, um, and, but they just enjoy the energy that comes from raging against the machine. So, you know. And then at the other end of the scale, you get some really innocuous, cute, harmless little groups, all excited about something quirky that no one knows about. So at one point, we're driving across New Zealand. We go through this little town. It's an aviation museum. And it's not a big one. And they've got a few planes there. And some people are really passionate about their planes. They did actually have the Tiger Moth biplane for joyrides, which my father had trained in the Air Force on in the 50s. So I had never been in a Tiger Moth, I'd seen them. But Ruth encouraged me, I said, all right, I'll go up for the joyride. And New Zealand, you know, it is, it is just adventure central. Like the insurance laws are so good. You rock up and I think, oh, here we go, I'm going to have to go through the safety video and the compliance. And they, they just go, what's your name? Give him a name. All right, money. Yep. ID? No. Forms? No, let's go. Literally, within five minutes, we're in the air. I think they just want the name to advise next of kin. Because <laughs> you find out after the flight that the plane was built in 1941 with a Holden motor and it's got 40 horsepower. Put, 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 you know. Uh, but he's like, I said, oh, they said that you haven't got time for the aerobatics because you've got to pay more. He goes, no, you want some aerobatics? We'll do aerobatics. Oh, next thing. It's like, ah, we're doing a spin and a stall and just all. So that was awesome. Uh, But what I really thought was funny was just um, in the car park was the uh, Vauxhall Vintage Motorcycle Club, uh, Motor Car Club, uh, gathering with their, their Vauxhalls. Now, Hands up if you've ever heard of a Vauxhall. More than I would have thought. Uh, well, I shouldn't have asked. I should have said, uh, you know, I, look, okay, maybe you're a fan of Vauxhalls. I mean, there's a lot of British car marks that you can, I understand, you know, people with old MGs or Jaguars getting together, but in my, I just never thought Vauxhalls, you know, were really that flash. But I just didn't think there'd be enough even running today, let alone people excited about getting together. Anyway, they're from all over the South Island and they got the, I just thought, what a classic example of, you know, something that people get excited about. So, you know, good on them and all those surprisingly number of people who are into vintage Vauxhalls, good, good for you. Uh, I just didn't ever think they didn't, didn't do a lot for me. But anyway... Um, but it made me think, obviously, when you see these examples, you know, people meeting in different communities, and of course there is one community on earth that is the ultimate community because it's got a purpose greater than just sport or gathering around a funny old motor car. There's branches all over the world. You can join. You can feel part of it, even if you don't understand the language. You can find a home. It's free, uh, on one hand, sort of cost you your life if you do it the right way, but you know, uh, there's room for people of all ages, all shapes, sizes, races, backgrounds, cultural diversity. It, it's got such solid foundations and longevity that it's the only club that's ever going to last forever. It's, of course, the church. And, um, and it's amazing. It's not perfect. We know that. But it is wonderful and beautiful because it has a perfect leader. And so today in our countdown to Christmas, we're focusing on Jesus and his title as the head of the church, which if you look in Colossians 1, you see 
a passage and I'm going to read quite a few verses and then we'll notice one particularly. Colossians 1 verse 15, I think this is NIV, no maybe it's, no it's NLT. Christ, here, thank you, here it is, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He came to earth, right? He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Thank you, Al. Great prophecy reminder of Flip. There's a spiritual dimension to life. We need to be aware of that, especially with the enemy in that dimension that we need to... um, address attack and conquer and reference here everything was created through him and for him he existed before anything else he holds all creation together Christ is also the head of the church which is his body he's the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead so he's first in everything for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He's made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, sin. Yet now he's reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he's brought you into his own presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That's awesome. That's the gospel right there, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? And uh, so this passage really reveals how important Jesus is, how preeminent Jesus is, how powerful, awesome, amazing uh, that, that he is. And, um, and notice that he's referred to as Christ which is another title that we'll look at in more detail in coming weeks. But as you probably know, Christ uh, is the Greek word uh, relating to the Messiah, the Hebrew word, both meaning the anointed one, the promised one, the prophesied one, the the, the saviour that people have been looking for for so long. In other words, he's pretty important, right? Um, And verse 18 says... He's the head of the church, which is his body. So Jesus has all the power and free reign to do whatever he wants to do in the whole universe. And of all the things he could be doing, Jesus has chosen to establish and head up this thing called the church. That's his great priority. And he, of course, he says that, you know, before he left the earth, Matthew 16, 18, you know, he, uh, he famously said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not even stand up against it. So that's his mission statement. That's his priority. And of course, over the last 2000 years, we've seen the development of the church as Jesus has been building it, uh, standing up against all that hell has thrown at it. Uh, in fact, you know, when persecution is at its highest and hardest, the church is at its strongest. And that's the challenge for the Western world, that we're often comfortable and that we aren't complacent in our comfort. Because if you hear stories about the church in China and in other parts of the world where they're persecuted, they are passionate, they are strong. The church is rising. You even see that in biblical history, in Acts, you know, where Stephen stoned to death 
and uh, the church is scattered and you think, well, that would be the end of it. No, they just go and spread the gospel and God uses that persecution and people rise up and just say, fine, take, kill me if you like. And martyrs have left their mark on the earth. And, you know, so the church is strong and today uh, it remains the gateway to heaven, the the, the gathering of God's saints, the pillar of truth in society, the, the, the beacon that shines light into a dark and dying world. So it's, it's pretty awesome, yeah? Uh, look at another passage that refers to Jesus' head of the church in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Notice verse 21. It says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's really important because of what we're about to read what some people consider quite controversial these days. But if we all got on the same page with verse 21, it would take a lot of heat out of the next few verses. All of us, men and women, submit to one another. So if you're living with humility and submission, then you can read the next bit, verse 22. Verse 25 all right, now we'll say it. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But notice verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for it. Ruth will take all your questions on this subject (laughs) over coffee. Okay, because we've got to move on. Uh, It really isn't our subject today. But, you know, obviously there's a good high bar there for men who in the past might have said, oh, you're supposed to submit to me. It's like, yeah, but are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Because that would make it a lot easier for her to submit to if you're a godly guy pursuing holiness with good character. If you're a complete buffhead, well, then why would she want to submit to that? So, you know, as I said, Ruth will answer all your questions. Because I want to just notice there that it says Jesus is head of the church again. And as I said, the standard to which men are called to love their wives is a reflection of the church and Jesus' relationship with us. So marriage at its best, marriage is... Look, marriage isn't always easy and it wasn't always, it wasn't meant to always be easy. It's not just about our personal happiness. It's a reflection of Christ and the church. And there's a lot to unpack there. So notice it says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the church is considered the bride of Christ. And when you read on in that passage, which we don't have time to do today, but it says that Jesus is preparing the church to present her to himself for this incredible wedding day at the end of time. And we're going to sit down, we being the church, the bride of Christ, at this amazing wedding celebration. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. So in the meantime, what does this mean? That, wow, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Well, there's a few implications from the truths in those two passages. And uh, three particular I want to notice today. The first one self-evident, that if Christ is head of the church, well, we need to recognise him as just that, the ultimate leader of the church. The church universal, as they say, anyone that proclaims Jesus as Lord and Saviour and 
signs on to you know a half decent attempt at fulfilling bible doctrine well then that's a church you know and uh and then specific local churches and uh and yet in each place no one else has greater influence or should have greater influence in that church on how it should be run than Jesus no tradition no program no personality no policy nothing should get in the way of what Jesus wants done because he's our Lord, he's our leader, he's the king, he's the head, yeah? And so we're all called to submit to him, to serve him as individuals and as a gathering, ecclesia, group of people serving and following him. So Jesus determines the beliefs of the church because they're made clear in the Bible. And churches go wrong when they just add things in and say, well, it's just as powerful, important as scripture. Jesus sets the agenda on how we should our li- live our lives, character-wise, uh, not every specific you know, decision you make in your life, but principles that were given in our lives and as a church. And Jesus has the best plan for us to follow in life as individuals and also as his body. And notice the head, that term has got two you know, inferences. One is like the head of an organisation, the, the head of a company, the principal, the the boss, if you like, the CEO, Um, but also the head in the sense of being head of the body, just like we have a head for our physical body and the church is the body of Christ. So just as your head holds your brain and the brain sends messages for the body to obey, that's how it works. Jesus is leading and directing with messages into different parts of the body of Christ. And of course, every local church has local leadership because some of us are called to plan and organise and program stuff in the life of the church. We've all got different gifts and some people are gifted with some leadership gifts so things can be done effectively. But good leaders are humble. They listen to God. They realise, Jesus, it's your church. Right? It's not my church, it's not this group of people's church, it's his church. And so we're praying all the time, le- listening to his leading, right? Because he's the ultimate leader and we, we just serve God with leadership gifts, don't get on a power trip. And of course, good leaders are also smart enough to realise they don't know it all and can't, and can't hear from God perfectly by themselves. So they're listening to other people. They're consultative leaders, yeah? So there's other people tuning in and listening to God as well. So churches, when they run well, they're, they're not exactly democracies, and they're certainly not dictatorships. Though church history has shown <laughs> both, that sometimes can, you can just end up with a power thing going on where people have all got an equal say in this little powered trip and they you know vote the pastor out just because they didn't like him and the vision of the church drops and then sadly sometimes you get these personality cults and you know they're just sometimes quite cultish even sadly within christian circles you can have you know what do they call them high control groups and people are coerced and that's really sad and scary but Ideally, we, you know, we own, it's a theocracy in, in sense of what kind of governmental system. Jesus is the head. And then we have some things in place so that we can listen to him, follow him and have accountability so no individual gets too carried away, you know, with, like I said, a power trip. So that's pretty clear. We want to recognise Jesus is the head. Second implication that flows from these passages is that 
Jesus loves his church, and so we should love his church. That's his heart. That's his desire. It's his great priority. So it should be a priority for us as well. Because when someone becomes a Christian, they get called into this thing called God's family. Body of Christ, family of God, army of God, temple of God. You know, a lot of metaphors used for the church. But, you know, you don't, when you become a Christian, just have God as your secret father in heaven. This sort of private, secret relationship where you're isolated from other people. And, uh, and we are given brothers and sisters to do life with. Because if you imagine, you know, raising a family and having all the kids completely isolated from each other, that would be a really weird family dynamic, wouldn't it? It's like you, you just want them to, to get along. You, you know it's good for them. It's some of the best times we ever had raising children is to see the kids getting along together. And sometimes they don't get along. And so sometimes you do have to isolate them a little so they don't kill each other, you know. Uh, but the, the rub of life, it's good for them to, you know, learn to compromise and share and work things out and overcome tension and conflict. And, you know, and then there's some wonderful times, rich, beautiful times where you see them learning together, growing together, supporting each other, encouraging each other, um, you know, recognising each other's different gifts without trying to compete and compare and just encouraging that. And, uh, and then, of course, standing up for their brother and sister if they're being teased at school. You know, we always encourage our kids, just stand by your siblings, you know. But sadly, sometimes in church families... You've got this weird dynamic where one kid is being, one, you know, one of God's kids, I mean, uh, is being bullied by the devil or the world or someone criticising him and some of the siblings who should get around him don't. In fact, it's worse than not supporting him. Sometimes they pile on and add to the criticism and attack them. And of course, that saddens the father as it would a natural father, not seeing your kids getting along properly. You know, you want to you see him work it out. Um, I read a, uh, a, a teaching, a preacher talking, um, you know, about the Ten Commandments and we did a series recently and, of course, one of them is do not commit murder. It's quite a good idea, isn't it, really, when you think about getting on with people and I'm guessing that not many, maybe none here have committed murder. Uh, but in a sense, the, the spirit of cutting someone out of your life is like murder. This guy extrapolated it really well and, and, and I should have probably kept the quote because he said it better than I'm going to try and explain it but it resonated with me when he said it's like if you cut someone out if you're offended or upset with someone and you won't have anything to do with them it's a similar kind of spirit to murder because you're basically just removing them from your world you don't want them in your orbit you're ridding them of course a little less dramatic version of ridding them from your world than taking them out physically. But it's a similar thing. You're just saying, I, you, you have no place in my life. And that's not God's will. Uh, and of course, you know, no church is perfect. No individual is perfect. No leader is perfect. But that shouldn't stop us working things out because we love the Lord and we love his church and getting along with the siblings that might annoy you sometimes. Because, you know, walking away is not the answer. I've heard Ruth describe it well. Uh, you know, if, if you imagine a guy invites his mate to a barbecue and the mate says, well, yeah, I guess that date's all right. I'll just check with my wife. And he says, oh, sorry, I'm not inviting your wife. What, what do you mean? He says, well, I like you, but 
I go, I, I'm really, I don't like your wife. Excuse me? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, she said something. It really upset me. I'm quite offended with her, and I don't want anything to do with her. But you come over. It'll be great. Well, the guys can either say, well, grow up, pull your head in. We're a package deal, you know, or I'm not coming. I'm not, I don't feel welcome. You know, we're, we're, we're together. That's my bride you're talking about, you know. And yet, you sadly have people sometimes saying, well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. Now, I understand this can be a sensitive issue. I know some people have been hurt. I'm one of them. <laughs> I've been hurt in church life too. And maybe I've been doing some of the hurting sometimes because you can inadvertently say and do and things that upset people. And some people have seriously experienced you know, spiritual abuse, but I've also noticed that a lot of people are quick to say that spiritual abuse when it was really just a human conflict that they could probably do better to get over and work it out. And that's God's heart for his kids to get along. So you've got to be careful before you just walk away and just label something as, oh, that's just too much. And of course, if some church is cultish, then you get out of there and you go to somewhere where they've got their act together and most churches do. So, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds ridiculous that someone would ever say that to a mate, you know, I like you, but I don't like your wife. And yet that's what people are effectively doing if they can't embrace the church of Jesus. So... What are you going to do? You know, carry your offence around, let bitterness build up. No, you're going to deal with it. You're going to draw on God's love. You're going to grow in your character and maturity and you're going to learn to forgive yeah? and maintain that grace, that love, that sense of honour for the bride of Christ. And, uh, and of course, if someone's really hurt you in a way that you, you just can't get over it, then the Bible makes it clear you go to them and you talk it through. So, Frosty, if you're free for coffee... After the service, I, I even went away. I went away for nine weeks. I just, 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 God, just can't get over it. He didn't bring me a coffee one day. Oh, one of those precious pastors. All the perks. Um, so come on, there's a lot to love about the house of God, the family of God. I mean, you know, like the praise report we heard here, there's, well, that's proof of the pudding. You know, that, uh, that there's, there's good things that go on in churches. And we've been going for nearly, it'll be 30 years next year. And, uh, you know, you can see over the course of that time in this church and other churches, uh, people who are planted and raising their children, how things pan out. And it's, uh, it's worth, you know, loving and supporting and getting involved. And that's why uh, David said, in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said, come on, let's go to the house of the Lord. You know, and we want to have that in our heart and maintain that in your, uh, in your, in your spirit. That, that's my determination. Even when you maybe don't always feel like it, you know, but you tell yourself, come on, I'm glad. So um, we decide. We love what Jesus loves. We love his bride, even when she's imperfect. Yeah? Um, and then... If you love being part of the body of Christ, that leads to the third point or implication from these scriptures, and that is if Jesus is head of the church and we're his body, then there's always something for us to do. Each of us has something to do in the body. And scripture makes this clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. In fact, this whole chapter talks about the body of Christ and all the different parts working together. And we haven't got time to read the whole lot, but you can... Um, for your own benefit, but notice verse twelve seven. Sorry, verse twenty seven. Uh, you are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it. 
Every single believer in Christ is called into the body of Christ with something for them to do. And, uh, and of course, some of those parts, some of those roles, highly visible. You know, evangelists, preachers, song leaders, they're like, you know, the mouths of the body. People hear them, see them, they're out in front, it's easy to notice them. But there's other parts of the body that are just as important and they're not as noticeable. And that passage, you know, unpacks some examples. So, for example, this morning we ran, did our 10k run and uh, our eyes are checking out the scenery, our hands are shaking hands afterwards and fist pumping in celebration, so they're enjoying it. But meanwhile, the heart and lungs, they're working overtime. The legs are burning, screaming inside their sweaty little shorts. You know, they're all doing the hard yards, literally. The feet, they're stuck in this stinky, sweaty shoe. The toes, okay, has anyone got attractive toes? I just, I think toes are the funniest looking thing. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a toe in the body of Christ, that's, that's okay. That's great. It's more than okay because without you, where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? If I didn't have toes this morning, I mean, you're hopping on stumps for 10Ks. is going to be tough going, you know. You need your toes. And they're stuck inside these stinky, sweaty socks, but they're doing their bit. So sometimes in life, if you feel I'm surrounded by smelly, Stinky socks, I can't see anything, it's dark, I'm thumping the pavement. It's okay, you're all part of moving forward and progressing with the church, you know. I mean, someone's got to be the gallbladder, I don't know, I don't even know what that does. It's all sorts of weird parts of the body, maybe you feel like that, I don't even know what I'm doing, I feel like a gallbladder, what do gallbladders do anyway? I'm a lymph mode, I don't want to be a lymph mode, I want to be a, be a nose, Eyelids, I don't know. So, uh, so every part is important. I came across a great quote recently. You may have heard of Viktor Frankl. He's the famous Holocaust survivor who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. It sold over 20 million copies in 50 languages since it was published in 1946. He writes this, What we expect from life doesn't really matter as much as what life expects from us. Listen to it again. What we expect from life doesn't matter nearly as much as what life expects from us. In other words, it's very easy to live being constantly focused on what I expect out of life, what I want, what makes me happy, what I'm doing, what pleases me, who's helping me, what do I... But that's living at a very base level. A higher, better way of living is learning to respond to what life expects from me, what my gifts are being used for, to bless others, to honour God, to help the world be a better place. So that's living with responsibility. That's learning to give and sow and stretch and build and bless. As Jesus put it, you lose your life in order to find it. Because rather than just, you know, living like, a consumer, which is the, the pressure from the world trying to get us to think just only what can I get out of life. So I think it's valid when I read that. I just thought, wow, what does life expect of me? Not what am I expecting out of life? And you should ask yourself, you know, why, why are you here? <laughs> what, is, what is life calling from me? What am I doing to glorify God? How are you serving him? 
with your talents, your opportunities, your gifts? What are you doing about God's call on your life? Because as I said, it's very easy in our society to just dismiss those questions and think, no, no, I just want to get by. You know? But if you're just living, if your purpose in life is just to get by and have a good time, you're selling yourself short. So we live to give, we serve, we build, and we don't just build for ourselves. We build for generations. This is one of the beauties of the church. I want to give you one story and then we'll come to a close in the next hour or two. Um, you know that every generation stands on the previous generation and then that generation has hopefully got some wisdom, ideas, resources, something that will bless the next generation. And that adds purpose and meaning to our lives when we're aware of that. So you're not just thinking, oh, well, what's life? I don't know, just like I said, having a holiday in summer and then you die. It's like, no, 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 we're involved in something greater than our own life that carries on into the next generation. That's legacy that we talked about earlier this year in terms of contributing to our church. Um, and sometimes great things just are not achieved in one lifetime. And you see this in architecture and engineering feats. They often only come to fruition long after the person with the original idea who started it has gone. And we came across a dramatic example of this in New Zealand because if you drive to Milford Sound, you know, the famous beautiful uh, a sound, it's like a you know, fjord, you know, these big cliffs and beautiful lake in the middle or entrance to the sea, I should say, not a lake. Um, so you, if you go there, you drive through this stunning mountain scenery. But before 1954... You couldn't drive there. You could fly in if you had a heap of money. You could come down the west coast of New Zealand by boat and go into the sound. Um, or if you were really keen, you'd hike over the mountains. And many did because it, it became a really popular tourist attraction, even in the 1800s. Uh, and to do that, you'd be accessing it over these crazy mountains. And then this guy in 1889, William Homer, discovered a section of the mountains that was a little less crazy and steep than the other areas and they called it Homer's Saddle and here's a picture of it and that's the easy bit that's the low bit right and so people you know would would climb over that and there's a guy delivering the mail they had Homer's rope they called it ropes they had these series of ropes and these crazies kiwis man Adventure sports. They just thought, what can we do to make things crazy and hard? We'll climb this mountain. But they were trying to get the, they were settlements down on the other side. So they'd climb over and it would save time than going around by boat. But William Homer had a big dream. He envisaged a tunnel going through the mountain that would allow for road access to Milford Sound. But his vision wasn't shared by others, including the government surveyor. The government surveyor said, it is quite useless for a route to Milford Sound. But that didn't put an end to it. Homer persisted. He wrote, there'll be no more climbing over the ice and snow, no repairs needed, open all year round, estimation of cost, £2,100. A team could be found to accept the work at these figures tomorrow and be glad of the chance. So he's visionary and he put it out there. Sadly, he died only a few years later. But he had set the wheels in motion. The dream was in place Finally, they started work in 1935, decades later, when engineers got on board, surveyors were involved. Here's a picture of the initial team of guys by hand, digging holes through the mountain, through the rock. Took them 20 years to finish it. 
The first car, car finally drove through in 1954. And there it is, the tunnel that you drive through today. Goes for 1.2 kilometres. It's a 10 degree gradient. And it's one way and you have traffic lights, fortunately. They didn't always have traffic lights. Classic Kiwis. They just sort of figure it out halfway through the tunnel. But now they realise, okay, okay, tell you what, you, that bus, you stay there. This truck, you go. And anyway, it's an engineering marvel. Took a lot of people over several generations. And of course, the guy who had the initial idea didn't get to see it finished. But that's the way it is sometimes. Some great achievements, you know, need heaps of time, effort, successive generations of people to fulfil the dream. And of course, the greatest example of that is pouring our time and energy into the Church of Jesus, because it's for God's glory. It's, it's carrying on. And that's why for 2,000 years, people from all eras, all generations, cultures, countries, varied gifts, personality types, you know, with different churches of different flavours, colours, names, titles, logos, denominations, whatever, yet all with one great task, to be living stones, to say, Lord Jesus, use me as you build your church, to find and fulfil our role in his body, because it's so grand, it's going to go off into eternity. So I want to put it to you that it is worth loving, committing to, yeah? So today we honour Jesus as head of the church. It's his leadership that we follow. It's his bride that we love. And it's his body that we are finding our place in to serve him. Amen? Come on, let's pray. Wonderful. Well, Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you are the head of the church. And we know that we're not perfect, so the church isn't perfect, but you are perfect. So we just keep looking to you and you'll sort it out. You'll figure things out. You'll rine out the wrinkles in church life and personalities and decisions and all that and all around the world we are glad that you are still building your church it's still a beacon of light for people to come and find salvation in you a pathway to heaven brothers and sisters in the family of God who can encourage them you know before we finish today I just want to put it to you if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and asked him to be your Lord and Saviour you want to do that before you go anywhere That is the single best and most important decision you'll ever make in your life. To commit your life to God. You know, you're not a Christian just because you're a nice person. You're born in Australia or you visit church or even read your Bible. It's a personal relationship with God. And Jesus made it possible by coming to earth. We celebrate that at Christmas, but we also remember that He lived, taught, for our benefit and then died in our place on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, sin that we should be punished for. But God looks the other way. He's Jesus taken the punishment. And so we stand before God forgiven when we accept what Jesus has done. So if you want to do that, I'm going to pray a very brief prayer right now. You can pray it to God where you're seated in your heart. Simple words, but a prayer of commitment to Him. So say this if that's you and you want to give your life to God. Pray these words. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus to this earth to die on the cross in my place.
for my sin. Forgive me and, and help me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Touching and blessing every person here today. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.